Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. On my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah, for this episode, the eternal champion has appeared as the disembodied voice of Marina in the 2012 Aqua Tales, an animated story of Opic, the junk food addict, who's fed the wish fish. He wishes that aliens would come to Earth and take all the fish away. Caroline has put us in the realm of the weird for this episode. Numenera is a science fantasy RPG set in the far, far distant future, written by Monty Cook in 2013 and launched with a phenomenally successful Kickstarter and winning the Any Gold in 2014 for the core book and setting. It was the first newfangled game that we played when we returned to gaming after our deep freeze. We played one-shots and whole campaigns, so we thought it would be good to share some of our thoughts and feelings about the game. It's built on the cipher mechanics, that's also been used with other settings. At the time of recording, I've just returned from the amazing The Owlbear and the Wizard Staff, a mini-convention set in Leamington Spa in the Midlands. I had a cipher day playing The Strange in the Morning, an urban fantasy game playing one of the quickened who were able to skip from different recursions, pocket dimensions within the multiverse, where your appearance changes according to the setting. Swords and sorcery, post-apocalyptic, space fantasy, all are possible. In the afternoon, I ran a game of Vert, the first cipher system game that was developed by a third-party company, Ravendesk. It's set in a near-future Manchester, depicted in the novels of Jeff Noon. In the sprawling metropolis, the players ingest vert feathers to travel into parallel worlds of dream logic, where it's possible to encounter the weird, wonderful and horrific with the consequences in the real world. In this episode, Blythe and I open the box on the newfangled Numenera and how it challenged some of our traditional ways of thinking. We're also joined by Kay Elling, who's going to share her first, last and everything. She's one of those newfangled women that everyone's talking about. And she shares her thoughts about the first game she played, the last game she played, and the game that means everything to her. She's a proud member of the Grog Squad, and you can follow her on at K underscore O on Twitter to see the amazing Judge Death model come to life. Judge Blythe, the resident rules lawyer, returns and we pick over the cipher rules to understand how the system works and how it develops the weird and wonderful. I'll be back at the end to talk about other projects that we have on the go. 
Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the show where we look back to look forward. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Now, we're going to look at the cipher system and mm. a Numenera. In Numenera. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, you said that. Yeah. <laughs> Numenera in particular. Now, normally when we do these things, we go right back in time. We 30 do. 30 years into the yeah, past. Into the dim and distant past. We don't have to go that far, do we, this time? No, no, we don't. No. 2015? 2015. <laughs> I want to go back to that because this is probably one of the first newfangled games that we started to play I, when we came I, back I from think it was. I think it was. I think it was the, the first newfangled game we played. I think we skirted around the edges of newfangledness and I took the plunge by buying Numenera, didn't I? Yeah. And I found out that there were some newfangled things and also that some newfangled stuff isn't newfangled at all, it's old fangled. Yes. But we'll come on to that maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's, that's true to say, isn't it? This was a game that was the bridge between what we knew from playing of old. So yes, I yes. Think, I think some people call it crunch, don't they? Do they? Crunch. Call it old, yeah. old school crunch. Old school crunch. Um, and new indie game type ideas. Yes. We, we thought yeah. they were revolutionary. We did. We and did. people now look at us askance and say, well, no, they... Not really, they're not just really. the same. Were we in the 90s, <laughs> in the noughties? Cryogenic chamber. Yeah. <laughs> we slept through all that. <laughs> so we got this game in 2015. What attracted you to the game? I think, well, there was a lot of... Um, it, as there is with these things, there was a lot of talk about it on Twitter. We, yeah. we notice, we see this, don't we, that suddenly Twitter and social media, gaming social media will will go crazy about a particular thing. Look over here. Look over here, look at this shiny thing, look at this new shiny thing, and then eventually move on. So I think part of it was that. And also, I think it was a level of intrigue because I think it was you that said, oh yeah, I think in that, that Newman era, you just described your character with a sentence. And at yeah. first we both thought, that that's just a terrible idea. But as time went on, we became more and more intrigued by it, didn't we? That, yeah. well, what does it mean that you describe you describe your character with a with a sentence? How does that work in terms of mechanics and this kind of thing? And I think, I think as well, I kind of flicked through a copy maybe in Fanboy in Manchester, and I like the look of it. The setting's good, and it's it's a very very attractive book, isn't it? That's yeah, you know. Um, there is a visual appeal to it. There's mm. something of uh, prog albums to it, isn't there? Yeah, there is you know, the Roger Dean. Roger Dean and Rodney Matthews, yeah. yeah is like a vermilion sky with yeah, somebody yeah. riding a lizard yeah. thing in there. And I, I, I think as well, it felt like a good newfangled game to get into because the setting was fairly broad. So it's set, you know, uh, a billion years in the future, isn't it, when Earth's had these nine civilizations that have risen and fallen and you're in the ninth world so our civilization is the first one and then there's been another seven or eight whatever um and you you know it's like the remnants it's like science fantasy very appealing very kind of broad it felt like although it was a newfangled game you could kind of do anything with it because some newfangled games felt very very narrow didn't they in, in terms of setting it when i first saw it i thought Hawk Moon. Yes, Hawk Moon. Some pushed some of our buttons, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, Jack Vance. More cocky in us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Robert Silverberg, even, you know that? Yeah, Lord Valentine's Castle, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, uh, yes, yes, it did. So I suppose it, it was the desire to get into something, to try something new and see what the fuss was all about. But also, it was something new that appealed to us. And I thought it would appeal to you and Eddie as well. It seemed like our kind of thing. Around that time as well, I was getting into podcasts, listening to podcasts. Yeah. Early days, me re- listening to them, and uh, Monty Cook, he's quite a personality. He puts himself about a bit in terms of promoting uh, the product and uh, yes. you know, put, you know, he makes it appealing because it's got a good elevator pitch, hasn't it? Yeah. That. Um, it's Arthur Clark's law, isn't it? Is it the third law where he says that any advanced science yeah, is some, distinguishable some from that? Any 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 science that is uh, advanced enough for the for someone to not understand it is is technically magic. Yeah, or something. Te- technology yeah, um, that kind of thing is indistinguishable from magic, and mm. that that's the central elevator pitch, isn't it? That yes. Um, it's it's science, but they don't engage with it in a science. We way. don't engage with it as science, and also I suppose beyond that, it, it goes a bit beyond that as well because it, it shouldn't be confused with a post-apocalyptic game where you're a bunch of simpletons who find an iPhone or a walkman and go, oh, it's magic. It's a bit beyond. It's a bit more than that, isn't it? Because the science in it, so-called science, is science even beyond our modern understanding. So it allows you to do very, very strange things and have very strange settings and very strange objects that are not even comprehensible by our standards. Yeah, because you know? somewhere along the line, one of the civilizations has realigned the cosmos and things like that. Yeah, there's, there's that kind of thing that one or two of these civilizations were kind of intergalactic, alien, non-human civilizations and all their kind of rubbish is still dotted around the Earth. And even the Earth doesn't look like the Earth anymore. You know, the map's different and things like that. So, yeah, it's got that sense of it's not just... It, it is supposedly technology, but it's technology so far advanced, even magic to the to the players around the table would think, I don't understand what this is. And so as uh, player characters, you've got three types, haven't you? You've got a Nano who is... Yeah, nano who's like a kind of... Effectively like a, a wizard... Yeah. user, a user of the technology, or attuned with the technology. And the, te- the technology, the, the stuff you find, either ciphers or oddities, yeah. or yeah. that's the Numenera, isn't Yes, it? and the Nano as well, it more than just attuned with technology, is attuned with kind of nano energy, these remnants of ancient energies, so they can kind of harness them and use those energies, you know, rather like magic, I suppose. Yes. Um, and then you've got Glaives, who are warriors. Uh, and then you've got Jacks, who are kind of like rogues, I suppose. Yeah. But this is, this is I mean, th- there, is some cri- there is some criticism um, of the game, that it is essentially like D&D. Um, and there's an element of truth to that. Those three character types are very D&D, aren't they? You know, there's no clerics, but, you know, not a bad thing. Uh, no clerics, but those fighter, rogue, uh, wizard magic user um, but in some ways you could say that about any game couldn't you? Yeah. L- lots of games are like D&D <laughs> yeah but it's, uh, it's an archetype I don't, I don't yeah. think it's necessarily that aspect of the setting that makes it like d and I think mm. it's use of a d20 
which we'll come on to when yeah, we look at the yeah, yeah. rules, sometimes feels very yeah. D&D-ish, doesn't it? I, th- I think what makes it different is what's interesting about it as well is, although you may pick a glaive as your character who is a warrior, there are ways and means of creating a warrior who has some sort of unnatural abilities and, you know, that kind of thing, can yeah. defy gravity and that those kind of, you know, strange abilities. So it's not quite as straightforward as you're a warrior, therefore you can't use magic and you just kick things with a big, big sword. You can pick a warrior that can do, you know, is telepathic or can... Yeah. control metal or control magnetism and things like that so it does mix it up slightly I think so as play characters your role is to explore isn't it to look at, around this yeah the gist of the game is that you explore and you get experience points for finding artifacts and things scavenging isn't it scavenging and exploring stuff yeah which sometimes I mean when we've we've played it I don't I, Whilst you do explore and do discover things, I don't know if that's been the prime motivating force of your characters. I think we've always had plots that drive you in other ways, I think. Yeah, yeah, because as we discussed, we said like part of the appeal and the way that it works, and we'll probably go into this in a bit more detail, but you um, choose, don't you? You choose uh, permutations of characters. So as well as those archetypes, you can choose different flesh to metal and all that kind of thing. And gradually you build up a background, don't you? So yeah. your place in the world, yeah. this is what makes you who you are. Yeah. And this is your relationship with the things around you. Um, I think what we've found as we've gone on is that those things are really appealing at the beginning. But when you've got a party of people who all have different backgrounds, different motivations, different concepts of the world, they kind of all blur into each other, don't they? <laughs> they can do a little bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. You've, yeah. Got to, you've got to really have players or um, you play to say, right, I'm going to really go for this. Yeah. You know, my character is trying to find somebody in the ether sphere that is like the internet, yeah. but they don't realise it's the internet. I'm going to tune into it. I'm going to meet every Monday and try and reach to my... <laughs> every Monday. If there is a Monday. If there is a Monday. They call it Monday. Whatever they call because it. Because of getting this, uh, <laughs> this sense from Outlook calendar. <laughs> yes, yeah. That, that's left a trace of the Outlook calendar. But it wouldn't be called Outlook calendar. It's some... Alien Race's version of Outlook calendar. I'm going to call this character Outlook. And they look for the remnants of the ancient civilization. And that's great individual motivation. Yeah. But you've got another four or five people. You have yeah. equally weird motivations, which... I mean, you're not supposed to draw connections between characters. You're supposed to make connections. But I know what you mean. It can be a little bit, yeah, sort of maybe too diverse yeah. in terms of what motivates people. Because that's what, yeah, it, what, what motivates your party. I think, but I, I think what you're hitting on there is the, the great, it's almost like the best and worst thing about the setting is the same thing. What I would say is the best thing about the setting and what was very appealing is you've got this world where anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Anything can happen. So it's very open-ended. The setting is put together very, very well because I, I think one of the um, 
revelations of it to me when I bought the book and I bought some of the supplements for the setting is the way the setting is created for the purposes of role-playing games. So it doesn't have those problems that you get with Golantha or the Imperium and that we used to have with the old settings in other older games. You don't feel like you can break the world. It is pitched as, this is your world, do what you want with it. And the explanations of the setting are quite brief and it gives you a bit of colourful stuff about each location. You can define it however you, you want, want to. Absolutely. If it fits in with your and, narrative, and you yeah. can have, it, it, it's not beholden to no. any timeline or anything, no. is it? And it, def- and, it de- and it gives you lots of scenario hooks. And to the credit as well, the other stuff they've created for the setting expands the setting rather than clarifies. It doesn't do, they've not done that thing of going, oh, well, you know, we told, gave you a few paragraphs about this place. Well, now we've done a, an expansion pack and you feel like we've done it wrong. And that, to its, that is to its credit. It's fantastic. You can do anything with it. But also, that can be its greatest problem because it can be an incredibly overwhelming world. It's overwhelming. You just, as a games master, and possibly as a player, you look at it and think, God, there's like other dimensions, other planets. You know, we've done all sorts of things with Numenera. I've had, we've had you uh, in a spaceship. We've had you walking into another dimension. All this kind of weird stuff can be, if you're not careful, completely overwhelming. And you can sit there as a games master thinking, Blimey, Charlie, what, what do I do with all this crazy stuff? You know, yeah. how do I how do I pare it down and, and furrow, kind of plough a furrow through it in some way? I think that's one of the... It's kind of its greatest achievement and its biggest problem. Yeah. Exactly the same thing. And I think that's why it's more satisfying as a one-shot area. It, yes. It, it, yeah. uh, I think, and, and that's true, because I think the most successful games that I've run of it have been one-shots. I think when we've tried to run a little bit of a mini campaign, it, it started to started to struggle a bit because you haven't got cliches to fall back on. Everything's supposed to be weird and you're constantly thinking, oh, are, are they going to wander into a little village and go to the tavern? No, it's got to be weird. It's Numenera, it's got to be weird. It's got to be a village that's constructed from huge... Cocktail sticks. Well, yeah, huge cocktail sticks that we use. That's quite a good idea. No, but you know, like it, yeah. it's constructed within an old spaceship or something, old craft. Yeah. That something, anything weird. You feel like there's a compulsion to be weird, and at times that can be a bit draining and a bit wearing. You want you want to save your creative energies for the spectacular things rather than the mundane things. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there is a, a, a law of diminishing returns as a player as well. I think I mentioned previously when we talked about Numenera in one of the reviews of the years or whatever we did. I did say that sometimes you kind of think, is this intrinsic to the what's happening? Yes, yes. Or is this just an incidental... Yes, uh, it does have... It has a lot of fantastic monsters that are great monsters, but they're often so weird that it, it makes players think that that weirdness is somehow very, very significant to perhaps a, an overarching plot. And as a games master, you feel like whispering to them, it's not significant, it's just Numenera, it's just weird, you know. Yeah. Don't worry about the fact that it's a weird monster, you know. And and that's good to encounter in one, one shot. So invariably what it is is that 
the equilibrium is disturbed because something's switched on. That seems to be the plot. Yeah, something, something's reactivated or some monster or some alien, weird alien creature has started to do something that seems to generate a problem. That's been yeah. latent for years and centuries, yeah. but all yeah. of a sudden yeah. it's emerged and you yeah. have to do something with it. I mean, a good, I think a good example is one, one where there are these living colours. There are these living colours that exist on like cave walls and you encountered them as players in a game I was running and it had nothing to do with the plot. Um, I just thought it was an interesting encounter. But everyone started to start thinking, because it's such a weird monster, these yeah. living colours. Strange encounter, what does it mean? What's yeah, the what, what's, what's the, the significance, significance of these? And you think, well, almost every monster in Numenera is weird. Weird enough to make it seem significant. Yeah. And I think that's part of that sense of, if you're not careful, it can become overwhelming. As yeah. a game, it can be so weird, so overwhelming that you start to think, oh, you know, it kind of wears you out a bit almost. Yeah. You know, where's your game of brain out? So, just come and taking our rose tinted glasses off. They're mm. not very rose tinted, are they? No. But <laughs> we're taking these rose tinted glasses and they're not, you know, they're for uh, near sight rather than long sight this, this time. I'm going to start using uh, the cipher system. Yes. Or vert, so I've not done it yet, but I'm, I'm planning on doing it. By the time this comes out, I'll have played. Yeah. What I think uh, we, it'd be interesting to look at now is some of the conceptual elements of the game that were new to us, that yes. it introduced. Mm. Um, one of the things I think is, it was the first game where I felt a shift in the centre of gravity on the table. So it moves away from the games master being responsible for yeah. everything and you as players having some responsibility in creating what was happening. Mm. Um, would you say that's true? And is that something that we've taken into other games and how we play? Has that, has that affected how we've, we've our, our gaming style? Um, I think a little bit, yeah, because I think the character backgrounds and that... that Pushing that idea that I, ju- I, ju- I just I, I think we had backgrounds before, but yeah. we didn't, you know. Take it, for example, the games master doesn't roll a dice, do they? In mm. uh, Numenera, correct. Yeah. I remember when we first started playing, you were eighteen. To oh, it was really frustrating because I really wanted to roll the dice. I kept reaching for the dice and then yeah. realizing, oh, I don't roll them, do I? Oh, how annoying! <laughs> well, that, well, that approach seems familiar and accepted now yeah it doesn't seem as strange because we've played Apocalypse World haven't we and, and, and that involves the game me not rolling dice you know Powered yeah. by the Apocalypse that not, not Apocalypse World we've played we've played Monster of the Week which is Powered by the Apocalypse and that doesn't that involves me rolling no dice as Games Master it doesn't yeah. feel quite as unnatural now yeah feels uh, feels kind of a normal thing to do or not do so as I'm revisiting it for, because uh, we, we stopped playing Numenera, we played it a lot, didn't we? We played it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I think that's why you have to play it. I mean, you have to play yes. these games yes. to understand them and, and kick the tyres. And yeah, and I, I think, thinking about it, I suppose what it, you're right, the central gravity did shift a bit because I think what Numenera taught us or led us into is because as a games master, you don't roll any dice, you're more concerned with presenting players with things and creating the world and 
running yeah. the plot. And so it pushes you more in that direction. You, you're doing less kind of admin, so to speak, as a games master. Yeah. Um, and as players, you're a bit more proactive because we'll talk about this later, but it's a spend system. So you can decide to try and make roles easier or harder for yourself by spending points. And that was an odd, that was an odd thing. Yeah. Because it allows the players to sort of influence things more, make things easier or harder for themselves, depending. Yeah. That, so yeah, I know what you mean. There was that, there was that. It's not a massive shift, but it's subtle. It, it felt massive at the time, but probably Numenera, it's relatively subtle. We probably, since then we've played other games that were that, that that's kind of more acute, isn't it? Yeah. That shift's more acute, but it felt, it felt acute at the time. The other element to it that I find significant, because obviously back in the day we were playing fairly generic systems that were sort of tied, like RuneQuest, sort of tied to the setting, but could be separated from the setting. I, I think it was the first one that was driven, the mechanics drove the setting, and the setting drove the mechanics, if, if you mm. see what I mean. Yeah. And that's why I find it interesting now, revisiting it, looking at Vert, um, and that as a setting, and how the cipher system works with it. Because that's a bit of a strange setting, and it has the ability to find um, yes. ciphers and yeah. feathers and yeah. uh, that that kind of thing. But it seems, it, it to me, to my mind, it's the first time where the two are intrinsic. The two, one drives the other. Yes, it does feel a bit like that. I know what you mean. And I suppose if we look at the other cipher system game, like the Strange, there's still that in in all the games. There seems to be a a definite desire to have strangeness yeah. and weirdness and yeah I, I know what you mean would the cipher system work in a more mundane setting that's it I'm not, I'm not entirely sure it, it would you know because I think it's the ciphers that change things doesn't it so these one use yeah items. yeah that's yeah that's that's true that you you've got artifacts that you can find which tend to be big big things that you can keep using and then you've got ciphers that are like these one use remnant in in Numenera the one use remnants of previous civilizations that you can use to and they're like underpowered magical items that you can use once. Yeah, they are really. Yeah, yeah, they're like yeah, they're like magical items that you just use. And I suppose as well, unlike a magical item, the the some of them have an apparent uselessness about them, don't they? Yeah. Um, in one of their games, your character discovered a a cube a cube that that would expand to twenty times its size, and it just seemed useless until you were fighting people who were. You were driving machines, and what you did is lobbed it into the cockpit and expanded it, and it crashed the machine. You know that kind of thing. So that's, I suppose, that's where they, although they do operate like magic items, it's slightly different. Talking about, I, I tell you one thing that Numenera did changed in quite, uh, quite an acute way, is the way the kind of open-endedness about gaming. What I mean by that is, it's like ciphers, isn't it? Um, I bought a cipher deck, which is a deck of cards, you know, yeah. in the desire of paraphernalia, yeah. as you do. And the interesting thing about Numenera was, I was quite happy to put that deck on the table 
And when you found ciphers, I was quite happy to let you pick at random ciphers. Yeah. And I don't think up until that point I would ever have done that in a role-playing game. In any other role-playing game, magic items would have been carefully pondered over. Yeah. Mm, Ring of Invisibility. Is that the right thing to give them at this point? In that chest, that ring is a ring, or is it going to be a ring of feather falling or a ring of, you know, whatever? But in Numenera, I became far more relaxed about what people may or may not find. And, and, more, and more relaxed about what you did as players because I think the system has a nice flexibility to it. And I, I think of perhaps of anything, that's the one thing that Numenera taught me and led me on to, to be a bit more relaxed as a games master. Because old school, it was very preordained, wasn't it? You know? yeah. And I think that's what I mean by saying the centre of gravity shifting. Yes. And that, that is a good example, isn't it? Randomised ciphers that could just disrupt a scene, couldn't it? By yeah. just yeah. being... Yeah. Oh, I can use this yeah. in this situation. Yeah, you could find you could find something, and it. But you're right, and it, and it kind of forced you as players to think more creatively, and forced me as a games master to think more creatively. And in a way, that that's probably the one thing I'm most grateful to Numenera for that yeah. it did free up my kind of gamer brain a bit, and probably freed up you and Eddie a bit. Yeah, you know, another another great example was when. I think Eddie found something that was like a, it, technically it was like a love portion, wasn't it? Some yeah. pill. And you were being attacked by this monster that was making mincemeat of you. And he decided to throw the love portion, a love tablet, this thing, into its mouth. Yeah. And of course it ran away looking for a mate. <laughs> which thought was again the kind of creative use of things that Numenera gave us that yeah. felt quite liberating. Yeah. Whereas I think prior to that, we were locked into, you know, well, I've got Blade Sharp 1 in RuneQuest and I've got this yeah. Shield 2, whatever. You know, that very straight-laced almost in terms of abilities and what you could and couldn't do with things. Everything tied down. And yes. that's why I think it's going to yeah. be interesting seeing how that system drives Vert. Mm. Uh, because part of Vert is in a dream, consensual dream world. Yeah. And um, the ciphers... And, feathers and the things will have effects and you, and it will to help replicate the dream yeah. because it will be randomised, yeah. it will feel like yeah. anything could happen. So and because and because it's a, although it has its complexities, um, because it is a relatively simple system, it that it that's allows you to have that liberation of well which again isn't doesn't feel like a new thing now because we've played lots of more, more modern, slicker, simple systems that allow for more uh, collaboration and more kind of improvisation within a game, whereas in old school games sometimes you didn't have that. So it doesn't feel new now, but with when we got Numenera, it did feel like that. I can remember reading the rules and thinking, all right, yeah, I can, I can kind of go with this on the hoof to some extent because it's not that difficult to put things together on the fly, so, so they say, that's the word, isn't it, on the fly. Yeah, that's what people say. Come back and have a look at the rules in a bit more detail. Okay. Hello, my name is Kay Elling, 
And yes, despite what your ears tell you, I am a lady. I'm a long-time listener and first-time podcast contributor. Uh, thank you very much to Dirk for the invitation uh, to be the first female voice on GrogPod. Uh, to everyone listening, I am so sorry it had to be me. So who am I? Um, well, in RPG terms, I'm absolutely nobody. Despite being a grognard of the correct age and now also, sadly, shape, I've never published anything RPG-related, which begs the question, why am I here? Well, like many listeners, I've made a glorious return to the hobby recently after about 15 years away. And I've done that thing where you blur the lines between your hobby and your work, but more on that later. For me, RPGs are a first, a last, and currently pretty much everything. My first is somewhat of a blurry memory uh, due to being a bit of a tear away and almost certainly drinking at the time. I think the first ever tabletop game I played was Paranoia. Uh, it was at a sixth form party in 1989 or 1990, and I would have been either 16 or 17. Uh, we were geeks, so there was A, only about seven of us, because we had no friends, and B, we didn't really know how to party, so we just kind of geeked out while listening to Sepultura and raiding the parental drinks cabinet. To give you an idea, uh, out of the seven of us at the table, we grew up to be a biochemist, a surgeon, two game developers, an aerospace engineer, and an academic. Presumably the other one went on to nerd success as well. Uh, history remained silent on this fact. Uh, he's probably running MI6 or something. Uh, but anyway, I had no idea what was going on, which has become a bit of a theme in my gaming life. And it gave me the mistaken impression that role-playing was a competitive rather than a cooperative sport. I was almost certainly the first to die and go outside for a fag. Um, it put me off competitive games for life, really. This wasn't a great start, and if it hadn't been for my second ever game, which is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, that happened about an hour later, that might have been the end of it right there. I guess here is where we cut to a montage of me pretending to grow up, but getting sucked into LARPing and more RPGs, and eventually becoming a 2D and 3D artist in video games instead. I cut my teeth on TNN Outdoors Bass Fishing 1996, for the Sega Genesis, no less, at Imagitech Games. Uh, we then got bought out by Gremlin Interactive, Infograms, uh, I then worked at Sony and Acclaim, if you remember them, and eventually Blitz Games. So I worked on about 20 titles or so, only 10 of which saw the light of day in the 13 years I spent in games. Uh, the last being Bratz the Movie the Game, uh, yes, you heard that right, which was on the Wii, and yes, my lifetime credit list is just as sparkling as it sounds. I never worked on any RPGs though, uh, much to my dismay. But it did give me a route to championing women in games, becoming an academic, and I've been teaching game development, both art and design, uh, for video and board games for 11 years now. Currently, I'm the head of department for games, animation, and visual effects at Teesside University, and this is where the blurring of hobby and vocation come in. Most recently, I've been leading the creation of the first ever university degrees in tabletop game design at both uh, BA level and an MA, and they're validated and ready to go at Teesside University. Send your kids. 
of course, I've not done this alone. Um, there have been technical input from colleagues. So there's a shout out to Martin Kane, who's a champion bridge player, uh, Pete Dwyer, maths whiz, Julian Cordry, who GMs an absolutely brilliant Pendragon game, if you ever get the chance, uh, as well as writer Ian Sturrock. Uh, yes, that Ian Sturrock of Conan and Slain RPGs for Mongoose, uh, Dragon Warriors, and in circular fashion, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. The BA tabletop game design covers everything from basic visual communication to balancing play, gameplay modeling and statistics, uh, also the psychology of play. And incidentally, this is where my own PhD research comes in as I'm exploring player interaction, uh, team dynamics, and focusing on the various horrors of griefing behaviors in multiplayer games on PS4. Uh, thankfully, I have yet to witness any teabagging around the roleplay table, but hey, I play a fair amount of World of Darkness, so it's only a matter of time, really. Talking of World of Darkness, my latest game is Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition and it's my first ever stint as GM. Uh, I've got a fantastic coterie of experienced and very generous players so I'm well looked after, uh, although some of them are the best GMs I've ever played with so the pressure to deliver an 8-star experience is really high. I'm making all the classic mistakes, uh, despite all my years of game development and gameplay research, but I am having the world's best time uh, writing a ridiculously twisty-turny campaign for two Tremere, a Malkavian, and a Nosferatu. Uh, one day I'll illustrate it properly and get it out there for everyone to see, but not until I've finished my life-sized Judge Death puppet build. Yes, Judge Death. Now, if you followed me on Twitter, you'll have seen that the now 18-month-long labour of love uh, that is this puppet build has been you know, going on pretty much every weekend for a while now. Uh, he's made out of PVC pipe, extruded polystyrene foam, various bits of weird hardware that I've picked up here and there, and is eventually going to be seven and a half feet tall. He's cost me hundreds, if not thousands of pounds to build, and I'm still only halfway through. But I am loving the life that I've got now, using all of my old LARP-safe creation skills with latex and isoflex, as well as learning new skills with monster clay and silicon casting. Basically, it's like building and painting miniatures, but on a very large scale. Uh, very much like my dwarves, I don't do small stuff. And so this brings us back to art, and it's always about the miniatures, about the paintings, about the drawings of character archetypes, the weapon designs, the beautiful covers. Uh, I'm a bit disappointed that the new Vampire the Masquerade book is as much excruciating LA goth photography uh, as it is incredible photo bashing and digital painting on the inside. But you know, you have to move with the times. Or not. Because we're grognards, right? I certainly know I am. Anyway, here's to girl grog power and many more years of gaming. See you at grog meet. Judge Blythe rules. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. He's, you've got your uh, ermine on. And your, <laughs> the ermine, yes. And your finger in your gavel. Oh, don't start that again. Is it a gavel or is it an oddity? Stop fingering your oddity. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> What's worse, fingering an oddity or a gavel? I'm not sure. I don't know. Fingering anything. It's, Stop uh, it. It looks like it's depleting. Anyway, 
We're back in the room of role-playing rambling. We haven't done this for a while, have we? We haven't, no, We haven't no, looked at some good. rules. Yeah. I'm quite looking forward to this because mm. I do think that the Numenera rules, the cipher rules, are actually quite interesting, aren't they? How they work they, together. They are, yeah, they're interesting. There's there different was, elements to them, isn't there? Yeah, and they were certainly interesting when we, we first encountered the game because I, I think... It's worth saying that this discussion of the Numenera rules is in the context of it being the first newfangled game that yeah. we played. So some of the rules in it kind of took us by surprise slightly, I think. Yeah, yeah very mm. much so. Mm. So we're going to give, uh, you're going to do your usual thing of picking uh, three highlights and one thing that you think's a bit duff. Yeah. Okay. okay. So let's uh, pick out your three highlights and then we'll go through them one by three, one. Three highlights are, in no particular order, um, descriptors. descriptors. Descriptors and foci. Foci, focuses, I don't know. But the two, two go together, don't they? Yeah. But we'll explain that in a minute. Okay. Uh, recovery rolls. Yes. And uh, levels. Right. Okay. So let's, uh, mm. let's start off with... Descriptors, stroke, Fork. foci, foci. strike, focuses, focuses, foci. You say focus, I say foci. I say foci. Foci. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I think they say foci in the rules. Yeah. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, this is, this is the thing that first sort of made me curious about Numenera because I think we, I can remember us having a discussion about these newfangled games. And I think we were talking about Numenera and we said we both said, oh, that's the game where you, you just describe your character as a sentence. And I think we both like, scoffed and thought, oh, come on, what's that? Yeah. What's, that? what's wrong with 3D6? You know, rolled in order, strength, intelligence, dexterity, etc. So what's wrong with that? What are you talking about? But of course, when I got the game, there's, there's a bit more to it than that. Um, so what you do is, and again, it's no big deal in some respects now, but it was at the time. You, you describe your character by saying that you are, a, for example, a strong glaive who fuses flesh with steel. Right? Yeah. And what, you, what you're doing is those, the phrase strong is on a particular list. So you've got you know, certain descriptions, strong, agile, clever, things like that. So they're not just any old word. It's from a prescribed list in the rules. And similarly, the character class Glaive is just a warrior. That, that's straightforward enough. And then the Forkai. Is it Forkai descriptor? The other bit, anyway, on the end. I was getting a bit mixed up, which is the descriptor, which is the Forkai, but it don't matter. The bit on the end fuses flesh with steel. Uh, again, it's from a prescribed list within the rules. So there are other things out there. There's, I think in the advanced rules, one consorts with the dead, which is someone who can kind of speak to the dead of these kind of things. So what you do, you do that, but there's a bit more to it than that. You're not just picking this and creating a sentence. Those words from those lists then give you a set of abilities, don't they? So yes. strong, for example, will give you pluses to your might statistic and maybe give you a couple of abilities yeah. uh, related to strength. Fuses flesh with steel is you're a kind of cyborg. I think you picked you pick that. I up, did, didn't yeah. You, you picked that. that. So that will give you certain abilities like uh, machine-related abilities, perhaps a bit more armour than normal, that kind of thing. 
And the ability to uh, interface things, that was the... That's right. So different yeah. Numenera could give me yes. different advantages yeah. and I could so, learn things as well. That's right. So there's, so there's a bit more to it. You're not just picking a set, not just creating a sentence off the top of your head. What you're doing is filling in blanks. And making with, something meaningful in the game that will yeah. be translated into yeah. the mechanics. Yes. Yeah. And so far from kind of, when we discovered it and worked out how it worked, far from sort of laughing at it, we thought actually it's a very good idea because rather than rolling randomly, you're picking, you're picking what you want, aren't you? Yeah. You know, if you want to be a strong character, you can pick that word. If you want to be agile, you can pick that. If you want to be clever, you can pick that word. And then the other bits, you know, you can pick something that sounds interesting. Yeah. So for us, I think that was a... A revelation of sorts. That yeah. Here's a role-playing game that doesn't rely on randomly generated stats. Yeah. You know, I think the the closest we got to it was you know allocating points among stats in, in the old days. I suppose there were systems like that weren't that used to do that. Yeah. But th this was a new thing for us that you yeah. could actually describe your describe the kind of character you wanted, and that would then translate into mechanics and stats that would operate like a more conventional role-playing game. I think, as I've said um, before in the previous sequence, the thing that struck me of the exercise of doing that wasn't necessarily building up the stats. I can see how that would appeal to you. It was more about... <laughs> <laughs> it, it was more about the background descriptions and your relationships with the other characters that yeah. are yeah. on the... Um, which, when I created the character, got me really excited yes. for playing in uh, Numenera. Um, I think the challenge is, is making that relevant in the game, in the play, yeah. bringing out those background elements uh, in the game. Yeah, it's, it's about working out how you fit into that world based on the description that you've picked. Yeah. yeah. It's halfway between um, building a character in 5e and a playbook yeah it is it is a bit yeah 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 yeah, yeah it's a similar kind of thing yeah because once you pick the words you do have a sort of playbook of two sort of say three playbooks to pick from the the in that example you've got the, the strong playbook to pick a couple of things from or whatever then you've got the character class playbook to pick things from and then you've got the description and what it what it gives you is more variety of characters yeah. you would have yeah. in straightforward character classes. Yes, because you've got different permutations, haven't you? Yeah. So I think it's, it's kind of interesting because you can be a glaive, you can be a warrior, but you can be a clever warrior uh, and pick a description, you know, who kind of, I think there's one, for example, you know, to do with like telepathy or telekinesis. So you can be a warrior, but you can be someone who's clever and has psychic powers, which again, is an interesting twist on things. So you can mash it up, I think, mash, young people say, it's, it's a, a bit of a mash-up, that's what young people say, apparently. Don't know what it means, but I think it means. It works really well in the uh, vert setting as well, because the idea of invert um, as a setting that it's a far future place, and there's been this, uh, in, in the previous years, there's been, um, Problems with the population's virility yeah. and ability to procreate. Mm. So a anonymous uh, megacorp have created something called fecundity, which restored people's virility. Okay. 
except <laughs> it gets a bit out of hand right. and people start copulating with everything. Mm. So the characters in the books are made up of... Uh, Doing more than fingering the gavel. Yeah. <laughs> mm. it's, uh, it, it, the characters in the books are a combination of dog people, um, robots. Yeah. Yeah. The, you, know, it, 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 you get these kind of mix-up. Yeah. Uh, People are halfway between the dream worlds of Vert. Yeah. So it kind of works with that idea that you're picking, yeah. picking a combination of words that are a combination of kind of a mixture of what's happened in the real world. Things exactly. Get, things getting mixed up. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I think that's why it's hi- ideally suited, actually. Yeah. It works really well yeah, yeah. with that. Yeah. And I, like I say, it is appealing. Mm-hmm. And, and in a sense, I'm going to kind of repeat this a lot during this, this discussion, but... Now it doesn't seem that revolutionary because lots and lots of new games allow you to just pick things or come up yeah. with things or use a playbook style. Um, whereas we came at it when we discovered Numenera, we were coming at it from the old Roll 3D6 and they, they stats and that's the way it is, hard luck. Yeah. Whereas I think now it's fair to say we, Numenera introduced us to something that I personally prefer. I like the idea that you pick the kind of character you want to play. Because it was always in the old days, there was nothing worse, was there, than rolling some weird set of stats that you thought, I didn't want to replace someone like that, but that's yeah. what I've been given. <laughs> I'm going to make the best of it. Or you inevitably default to the same type. Uh, yes, that, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you do, don't you? Th- those numbers on old-style character sheets and old-style systems, you do, you, you default to the same stats. I mean, that was always, always the thing with RuneQuest, wasn't it? You always wanted a constitution of 13 and a size of 13 because 13 hit points in RuneQuest 2nd edition was that gave you that as a minimum gave you that slight edge in terms of survivability but yeah you're right you always sort of defaulted to a character a bit like that you know and if it's got a a, you know if you're going to look at where its foundation is you'd have to say something like Golden Heroes because that wasn't a point allocation that is yeah. You compose your characters yes. made up of different elements. Different and things and then described. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right there. That's an interesting take on it because a lot of people criticise Numenera because they say, oh, it's just like D&D. It's just, D- it's just a reskinning, whatever that means, of D&D. And I can see where they're coming from to some extent because it does have a lot of similarities with D&D about having abilities and finding magical spot. Parts to be magical stuff, but then... Sort of lots of role playing games. You could you couldn't argue all role playing games are a reskin in D and D. But you're right; it does have more in common with something like Golden Heroes, really. Where yeah, yeah you you choosing abilities and and justifying where you've got them to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next up is recovery roll. Recovery roll. No, yeah. Before you go on, when we got back into uh, role playing mm. a few years ago, we did come a bit slightly obsessed with having a rest and all the, <laughs> all the mechanics around having a rest because yes, that's true that was a new thing what that we, we saw wasn't it yeah thing of yes having a break and just you know feeling a bit you know having a cup of tea yes. and a biscuit yeah <laughs> a cup of tea and a biscuit and you're back to full eight points right <laughs> kill more monsters no no again it isn't a, in most lots of Roping in 5th edition is, is the best example of it. And I suppose this is where it, it, it parallels 5th edition to some extent, that it has recovery roles. But when we... Enc- this was our first 
encounter with those kind of ideas, wasn't it? Yeah. Where suddenly one of the age-old problems with role-playing, which was always, you took a bit of a battering, you've not got much in the way of healing left, you're halfway through the dungeon, or wherever you are, um, or you've only got four hit points left, or you're in trouble, aren't you? Whereas Numenera has the recovery roll system where you get four recovery rolls per day, um, one of which can be mid-combat, can't it? The first one yeah. just takes a round. I think it's, so it's different from D&D in that the first recovery roll takes one combat round. So mid-combat, you can choose to just have a breather and gain some more, not hit points, are they, but more points, more stat points, which will help you. And then I think the next one's 10 minutes, then it's an hour, uh, then it's something like, I can't remember, like eight hours or something. So it's different from D&D in that respect. It's different time intervals. Yeah. But it is a really good rule because it broke that problem of, you know, the players have had a bad encounter, it's all gone a bit pear-shaped, oh no, what are we going to do? But you know, I've got some recovery, I've got some way of coming back from it. Yeah. You know, and I say it's not it's not a new thing, but it seemed new when we discovered Numenera. Yeah. Because it was our first first game and that type. And depending on your forky focus description or whatever. If it's cold, yeah. That words, the words, the words, the words you picked. You could have uh, <laughs> things that are different, couldn't you? So I think one of mine was because I was partly robot that I could only recover so much. Um, you had to repair it, yourself. Had to repair yeah, yourself. Yeah. Repair, so make a repair roll rather than recovery roll for for certain and a certain amount of damage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was one of the, and in a way, I think the recovery rolls in Numenera opened our eyes to the idea that stop being such simulationists about yeah. everything. Stop getting so hung up. Hung up on simu because we were, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, we always came at it from a very simulationist point of view. And I think until we encountered Numenera, that, we were still in that simulationist groove, weren't we? Yeah. RuneQuest and healing and, you know, if you hit with a sword, it's going to hurt and yeah. If it's a bad injury, you know, unless you've got healing, it's not going to get better soon. But you realise how it starts spoil all the fun. Yeah. I mean, being hit with a big sword would spoil fun. I accept that. But, yeah. You know, in the real world, if someone hits you with a big sword, it will spoil your fun. Yeah. In all sorts of ways. But in a role-playing game, where in other respects, you're being quite... It's fantastical. Fantastical worlds with fantastical adventures trying to recreate movies and trying to recreate stories. It's so hung up on injuries. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I've, I've just been to uh, Rome and mm. uh, it was clear from looking at the place that people weren't killed outright by swords. They'd die weeks later. It was the infections. infections yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's the kind of absurdity sometimes of simulationism in role-playing. But, People develop these crunchy systems and systems about injuries and this kind of thing, thinking they're being realistic. You're not being realistic, are you? No. Even in RuneQuest, you know, you get hit in the leg for five points damage and you've got one hit point. You're still stood up. You're still fighting. Wouldn't be. You'd be in agony. You'd be yeah. in agony. So I think Numenera was the first game that made us think, oh, actually, it, this is like a story and stop getting so hung up about these things. And recovery rolls like the centre of that don't they because yeah. it was a way of 
you're not invincible. You're going to run out of recovery rolls. Sometimes recovery rolls, you roll low and it's not such an answer. So there's still that problem. It doesn't make it invincible, but it moves the story on. It, yeah. it make, makes it more fun, more enjoyable. You know, you don't get cornered quite as much either as a player or a games master from devastating injuries. And as I say, I know that other games do it. We play a lot of 5th edition D&D, that, that does it. But this was our first encounter and I remember reading it and thinking, at first thinking, oh, that's weird. Mm. And then thinking, that's all right, actually. That's okay, you know, yeah. yeah. Take a round having a breather in a fight. You just kind of steel yourself against the pain and recover a bit. Yeah, that's okay. You can still die, but, you know. <laughs> okay, what about uh, levels? The last one, levels. Well, Numenera works on a kind of level system, so that, that works in two, in two ways. Uh, one way, which isn't really what I'm interested in particularly, is every ability, everything you do is uh, given a level of difficulty ranging from 1 to 10. And you times it by 3 and you have to roll over it on a d20. Um, so level 4, roll 12 or more. Level 5, roll 15 or more. And of course, you know, you get to level 6, level 7 can't roll over that on a d20 but what you can do is spend stat points um, and knock levels down so it's possible to lock, knock a level 7 task down to a level 5 task and therefore it's 15 or more so that's one way levels are used but that's not really the, the bit that interests me because that's that's one thing but I really like the idea of Numenera and, it, and it's, this, this has a parallel with the recovery rolls thing that monsters and NPCs in Numenera, all you do, all they have is a level. So it's very, very easy to improvise NPCs. So if you're improvising, say, some city guard, say you're approaching a city, a couple of city guardsmen, they don't want to let you in, there's potential for a fight, you know, but it could go either way, you could talk your way past. So you can say as a games officer, right, these are level three NPCs. Level 3 NPC means 9 or more to hit them, times the level by 3 for hit points, we've got 9 hit points, uh, and it's as simple as that. So it's a really neat way of just creating monsters or NPCs, on the to, you, to use another trendy gamer word, on the fly. On the fly. On the, I believe that's what younger, younger people say, on the fly. Um, and again, that was a revelation for us because we'd been bogged down, hadn't we, in the old... Producing stat producing blocks. Producing stat blocks for everything because the games we were playing, like RuneQuest, required that. You know, they required, oh, well, hang on, I need stat, stats for these people. Yeah. I want Numenera. And again, it's something... It, it, lots of games since then have used these kind of systems. It's that kind of system of... You don't have to stat out the NPC like a player. Yeah. And you go, oh, yeah... No. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, the monsters in the monster, you know, the beastries, have, there's a bit more to it than that. They have a level, but they have abilities and things like that. But top and bottom of it is, it's very easy to just invent stuff and invent opponents off the top of your head by just thinking, OK, how difficult is this guy going to be to fight on a level of 1 to 10? You know, he's well-trained, he's a an elite warrior, I'm going to make him a six. He's tough, yeah. you know, bunch of a mob of peasants. Oh, well, 
with a pitchfork level two, you know, level yeah. one maybe. It's scalable as well, isn't it? So you can do it as a, a mob. You uh, can, yeah, yeah, you can do it as a mob. So yeah, a load of yeah. peasants. You might say, oh, well, there's 10 peasants with pitchforks coming after you, but because there's 10 of them, I'm going to just make these a level five opponent, yeah. you know, and therefore to defend against them. 15 or more quite difficult because there's a lot of them yeah yeah so that that was a, another a revelation that now doesn't feel like a revelation but was then yeah it was then because that idea of like a scalable easy calculation of just off the top of your head right that's how difficult it is from that number i can calculate everything i need to calculate about this opponent yeah. I think in time you come to realise though you meet and encounter quite a lot of level three and level four things. That's one of the problems actually with it. Yeah, because you do you end up thinking, well, you know, unless the players are really really tough, you don't want to make it too easy, you don't make it too hard, and so you end up with three fours and fives. Yeah, yeah, that that that's true. That is a problem with it, and over time that becomes a little bit wearing, and it's true of it's. It's probably less true of NPCs because you have you have got books of monsters and you have a lot of monsters with Numenera. So you, you can often you just draw in from the monster book. But when it comes to challenges, you know, kicking in a door, climbing a wall, when you're picking levels, you know, you, you realise you are picking that three, four, five category almost all the time. Yeah. Because anything above that or below that's too easy, above that becomes a bit too hard. Yeah. But that's it. That's true of all. I think that's a wider discussion. That's true of all games. Target numbers. Are. Target numbers are a problem because you do. You end up going for some mid-range number almost all the time. Yeah. Even though you think, why is everything in this world a level four? Yeah. Why everything? Climbing the wall was, kicking in the door was, talking yeah. our way past the guards was. Everything's level four. <laughs> so what about uh, the thing that you? don't like about uh, Numenera's cipher system? The thing I don't like and this, I, I don't like the name of it and I'm not entirely convinced it works within the game um, the name of it is the Games Master's Intrusion yeah, that's the Games Master's Intrusion, sounds like, it sounds like some kind of invasive medical thing, some kind of <laughs> test yeah. right, I'm just going to carry out Games Master's Intrusion, hold your breath yeah <laughs> It, it's so it just sounds a bit. It sounds a bit silly. It, it, it sounds a bit like a uh, Knights Black Agents. Digital infiltration. Digital infiltration. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds worse than that. <laughs> GM intrusion. A GM intrusion. We've had yeah. to carry out a GM intrusion. Oh God! What were the results? Oh, you're all right. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. Will <laughs> they ever be able to sit down? Will be able to sit down again. <laughs> <laughs> what I hate about it is when I've run Numenera at uh, conventions. Um, everyone likes it, everyone's up for the game, everyone, you know, looks at the character sheets, always is an interesting character in an interesting world. And you have to explain the GM intrusion rule. And you can see the look on everyone's faces like, what a silly, what a stupid word to use. Yeah. Stupid. So beyond the, beyond the word, beyond the word, there is a, there is a bigger problem. Games versus intrusions. Now, how can I explain these without... The idea is that... During the run of play, the games master, right, bear with me now, the yeah. games master can complicate things and offer players the complication. Uh, and with that complication comes an experience point. And the player, 
can either accept the complication or buy it off with an experience point they've already got. The problem I've got with it is, I, and there's another bit to it as well before you get on to the problem. Okay. Cool. You, get, you, you accept the experience point, but you also get another experience point. That oh, you, yes, that's weird as well. I don't like that either. Thanks uh, for reminding me. Uh, I block these things out. Another experience yeah. point that you give to another player, yeah. but you've got to explain why they are affected by that, that particular complication. Complication yeah. or intrusion. Yeah. 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 So... You know, examples of intrusions range quite widely. So it can be things like, I mean, I got, I got, because um, I struggled with it. I, I take, the reason I struggled with it is I'm not sure where the line is between being a games master and carrying out a games master's intrusion. I mean, isn't the job of the games master to make things difficult and interesting for the players? That's the very nature of games mm, mastering, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So I don't know where, where the distinction lies between... So, for example, I, got a, I bought the Games Master Intrusions deck yeah. from Monty Cook Games deck, and um, that kind of helped a bit. But, for example, one of the intrusions that's suggested is that as the characters are walking down the street, someone, one of them is wrongly identified as a criminal, a wanted criminal. Now, to me, that is the basis of a scenario, isn't it? I mean, that would, if you, would, if you built a scenario and then you decide, oh, well, you're walking down the street, um, somewhat, it, it creates a, a, such, a, such a big diversion in the game that it's the basis of a scenario, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that, okay. I don't quite understand that. And at the same time, it suggests things like saying, you know, in combat you drop your weapon and things like that. And again, I just think, oh, in the rules, if you roll a one, that's effectively a fumble. So you, if you're, someone rolls a one when they're attacking, you can say they've done that. Because rolling a one gives you a, a free intrusion as games master where you don't have to award experience points. So for me, things like dropping your sword in combat, that's, that's reserve that for when they roll a one. The idea of saying it just off, on, a, on a whim... Oh, I'm going to say, you drop your sword. Yeah. All right. Okay. Here's an experience point. It just, it just strikes me as those, those kind of, shall we call them a kind of fumble type situations, dropping a sword, tripping up, falling down. They're accommodated in the rules and accommodated in a lot of rule systems when you roll a one. When you have a duff roll, something like that happens, doesn't it? Armour yeah. strap breaks, you fall over, etc., etc. But at the other scale, those kind of big, a big intrusion, a game-changing intrusion, well, that strikes me as the basis of a scenario. Yeah. So I've, I never, I've never felt... The, the only times I've felt comfortable with it is... I think it, it probably works when the players come up with a plan and say, right, you know, we've watched the castle. There's, two, there's always two guards on the door. They change or the guard changes at such a time. That's when we'll strike. I can see a games master's intrusion of, well, tonight the guard changes at a different time. Aha. Yeah. That kind of thing perhaps works. See, but, that, but that's I, relatively rare. I feel, I feel a bit differently about it. Bear with me. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, you know, this is how the judging works, isn't it? I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so you put up the thesis, <laughs> I'll put up the antithesis. Are you ready? 
And do we get a synthesis? We'll get a synthesis. Do we? Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Socrates himself. Hegelian dialect. Is that Hegelian dialect? <laughs> I don't know. Someone will write in and correct me there. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you see, you've always GM'd, haven't you? And I've picked up the yes. Snipe system. Yes, that's true. And I think DM intrusions are actually core to how the game works. Because mm, yeah. we said earlier, didn't we, that um, ciphers can send, send the game and the ideas spinning in different directions. Yes. And so can intrusions, yeah. GM intrusions. I think, I think they're interesting. I'm looking forward to having a go at using them because mm. I think... I, I get what you say where you've got the ridiculous thing about dropping your spoon and uh, <laughs> discovering that your, your mother is Darth Vader. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I'm spinning yeah, out, yeah. you know, the, the, range, yeah. the range of like that. But as well as you can have group intrusions or you can have individual intrusions, maybe those individual intrusions are a way of drawing out some of those background things mm, yeah. that we've said can be ignored. Yeah. So if you know, for example, that somebody has to connect to what they don't realise is the internet once a month. Yeah. Maybe that's the thing, right? You're starting to uh, feel weary. You're losing energy. You need to find an input. I can see I can see that, yeah. And there have been games I've run where it has worked. It has it does sometimes work. There are moments where you think, ah, I think I'm gonna complicate it here by doing that. It does work. I suppose the thing I struggle with is, in the normal run of play, there's not that many instances where it does work. And given that within the game, it's a key way of earning experience points, the game sort of suggests it should happen more often than not. And I, I think that's what I struggle with, that it yeah. doesn't, the opportunities for it. Uh, unless, I I unless you're gonna be kind of... Just a send of... Uh... Send of young Bolton going by there. That's Bolton. Welcome to Bolton. Yeah. Not like New York without any of the glamour. All the crime and none of the glamour. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, what I think the problem is that it can work. And I agree, it can be quite satisfying as a games master to, to use it when the opportunity arises. But sometimes in the run of play, sometimes you can forget because you're having a good time and it's all working and you forget about them. That's one of the problems. Uh, another thing is just, I think just fitting them in sometimes without appearing willfully difficult yeah. can, can be a problem. I can get that, I get uh, that. But particularly because they're, they're a main way of earning experience points. So yeah. you kind of think, well, should I be having 10, particularly because players can buy it off with an experience point. So you can end up with an experience but no one's getting any. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and you sort of think, I don't know, it's a tricky, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing, I think, to, to deal with. And at times, it blurs the lines between just normal games mastering and some slightly clever-arsed thing that someone's invented of, ha, 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 an intrusion. Well, yeah, but I'm doing that all the time, aren't I? There's yeah. a trap on the door. I mean, you know, yeah. Of course yeah. there's a bloody trap on the door, because it's a game and there are traps on doors. Is a trap an intrusion? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll have to see, won't I? We'll have to see how, how I get on when I have a go yeah. at doing it. I feel that you have to do them regularly, because you need experience points. Because the yeah. thing is with this game mm. that we've not stated enough, yeah. is that it's bloody risky. 
It's a risky game, as you is character. Yeah. Part of the appeal to me when it was sold by those charismatic characters <laughs> from Monty Coop Games on these podcasts was the idea that you as a player could influence a story yeah. by removing some of the randomisation elements by spending points. Ah, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> spending points to alter the result at key moments. So you, if you want to beat the big uh, dragon monster that looks like a fridge, you can attack them <laughs> and you can spend your might points to knock down that level that you yes, were talking about. that's the idea, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But you still bloody miss. You still end up... Yeah. So you've got, yeah, you've got the three stats, might, speed and intellect, haven't you? And what you can do is spend three points from a stat to knock the level down by one. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit convoluted, isn't it, how it works? Because it's three points for the first point yeah. and two points for the next. And you've got a stat thing called edge against your stat, so you can reduce it. You can knock the cost off. If your edge is one, you can reduce the cost by one and things like that. Like that, and what you're doing all the time is depleting yeah. your hit points. Yeah, because it comes off might and speed and intellect. So yeah, you're spending hit points. All things lumped together as the stats of the stats, but they're also your hit points. So when you're on zero, you start finding yeah. Uh, yeah. on might. Yeah, you start finding things more difficult. Get zero on yeah. uh, the next stat, yeah. and uh, you start getting worse, and then ultimately you're gone. And you think you're right. It's questionable how much though that influences story because you can still fail, you know, it's not. Famously, famously, this is the game where <laughs> Eddie rolled a series of ones, I think yeah, about yeah, ones, yeah. about four in a row, yeah. he accused his dice of being warped in the loft. When uh, That's right, he said they were in the loft for a bit of while and the heat or the cover up <laughs> there and they warped the side. And we had a run of ones. <laughs> And so what you can do to get a re-roll is to expend your experience points. Yeah. Your experience points will help you level up, yeah. but they're also a benny, aren't they? They're a yeah. way of... Yeah, they are. They're a way of getting a re-roll. You can spend them for re-rolls. But and best... I remember at one point, yeah. Eddie, chucking them at you. Yeah, yeah, he did. He got re rolled So you've done it as well. You've both <laughs> done it, yeah. Getting so straight. That's the curse of the re-roll. That's true in a lot of games, isn't it? The re-roll, your gamer brain always goes... Oh, come on, I can do this. A 10 or more, I can do it. Here's our re-roll, then, because you still fail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, you're right, it, it is odd, isn't it, in that sense, that as a player, in theory, the idea that you can spend these points to make things easier and influence the game doesn't necessarily work because... It is risky. It's, it's high. It's a risky, risky business that can, you can still fail. Yeah. You know, it's not like... Um, and it's different from sort of something like fate, isn't it, where you spend a fate point to add two, but you know the dice roll. So you look at the dice roll and you can go, well, I can re-roll it or I can add two. So if I know the roll I've rolled, yeah. adding two will do it. So that's different. That's different from influencing. You know, it, would, it wouldn't be so bad if um, you rolled and then knocked the value down. But you don't yeah. do it like that, do you? You knock the value down, then roll. So. Yeah. It is fun because it does change the game in being less about... Um, it's more like a resource management game. I think that's what Steve yes, said when Steve we played said that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a board game almost. Yes. Like you've got this amount of resource that you're going to um, sp you know, spend to, at various points. Yeah, yeah. And I think, in, to its credit, 
it did change our view of gaming and it was like a kind of gateway drug into more yeah. modern games for us because it does to, to a lot of people out there they might look at it and go well it doesn't do anything special and some people have criticised it for oh, it's a reskin of D&D and it doesn't do anything special and blah blah and I think it's a fair point in some respects but for us it was the gateway into more modern different ideas different ideas exactly different ideas about gaming different ways of, of dealing with NPCs dealing with combat dealing with recovery dealing with how a game's run and that kind of thing you know, and even the even the intrusion thing, although I've, I do find it a struggle, it, I suppose, opened the door of improvisation. So it crosses your mind when you read about the GM's intrusions to say, well, I'll tell you what, you could just not have a scenario, couldn't you, and say to players, what do you want to do? Here you are, I'll drop you into this place, this location, what do you want to do? And my games master's intrusions will simply be me responding to what you do complicating them complicating what you do you know yeah. that kind of thing and maybe, maybe that's what you're supposed to do yeah. I mean I bought um, a scenario pack for Numenera um, and it was kind of like a book of uh, I can't remember what it's called now but book of one shot scenarios and I remember reading them and thinking these are very sketchy there's not much, there's not much to these. But I've run a couple of them, one at conventions, one with you and Eddie, and they were great because they were quite loose and open-ended. Yeah. And people's reaction to what was going on is what filled the gap, so to speak. So from that perspective, it, it did give us a, an insight into gaming that isn't, you know, going down the dungeon, check the door for traps, move this, move that, heavily plotted heavily railroady things you know so in that sense it's credit to it really yeah you know, it was the gateway drug yeah definitely yeah definitely and i think that's why i'm quite excited to be a games master in it because i do think that there's lots of good ideas in there yeah yeah um, i think we've played it a lot haven't we and we've moved yeah. on to different things yes yeah. yeah it's a natural there is a bit of that that we play we played it a lot and therefore now you, you do move on to other things. I'm, I'm kind of keen to play it as well because I've never played it. I've never been on the oh. receiving end of it as a player. So I'm looking forward to intruding you. I should look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, one of the things that uh, is great about Numenera, and we say this is a, you know, a key component of any good game, mm. and that's the best to it. Yeah, yes. over the old years of playing, which has been your favourite monster? My favourite monster? Um, well, I know you, you, I think you objected them slightly, but there, there is a monster that's kind of a robotic monster that just goes around trying to collect people's brains, which I did quite enjoy. <laughs> you know, that, that was quite a good monster. Um, what others? I mean, they're all weird, aren't they? Yeah. There's no regular... I mean, it's a great vestry, but, but at the same time, there's very few regular monsters in there. Everything's strange, but... Um, and there's a lot of them with special features, isn't there? So it's not just a case of... Uh, they're not a bag of hit points. They usually no, do something. No, they're not. They, they have all the very weirdness, weird things from other, other dimensions and stuff like that, isn't there? That, um, you know, one, two dimensions. There's one, there's, I think there's one monster that only exists in two dimensions or something like that which is strange to kind of get your head round that kind of thing yeah 
I think one of my favourites was that thing we encountered in a, a pool that had started swimming around in circles and was generating, um, it, it must have been an old disused generator. And because of it moving, it actually caused it to reactivate. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It was some kind of strange mermaid type thing with a skull head. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they are. I can't remember what they're called, but yeah, they've got those in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and isn't that a, a, a an odd thing that you have to come up with equivalents to describe the monsters? You have to come up with equivalents. It's like a mermaid, but with a yes. skull head. Yes, and that can that's one of the odd things about it. That I mean, the the bestiary is very very heavily illustrated, so you do get a picture of um, of all the monsters, and you kind of need a picture because they're very very alien creatures, aren't they? So in a sense, some of them echo like that, echo traditional monsters, just slightly skewed a bit. Um, but some of them don't echo traditional monsters at all. So, you know, some of them are really kind of strange looking things that you do need, a, you do need to show people a picture and say, it looks like this. I'm not gonna try and describe it. This is what it looks like, you know, that kind of thing. Right, I'm gonna give you this uh, D10. Okay. Uh, if you roll on it, because right. I don't want to roll it and the games must start going to... Oh right, yeah, that's the thing isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you roll it. Go on, I roll it. Right. Okay. Oh, so that's a two. That means that your oddity gavel has depleted. <laughs> oh no. We'll finger in it, revive it. Let's find out. Until <laughs> next time. See you later. Bye. 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 Now that I've actually run the cipher system in the vert setting, I've got a few things to add from the experience. The scenario was meant to be cyberpunks in Bolton meet Ben Wheatley's film A Field in England. A neo-Luddite faction versus the Buzzcoffs, who were robbing robo-parts to animate the dead. A black feather took them to a dream of Civil War England, a world turned upside down. I found it almost impossible to stop picking up a dice and roll it. It makes it tricky to keep track of where you're up to if six players are rolling for initiative, defending against an attack and making an attack. I need more practice. At least if the Games Master rolls, it puts a marker in the sequence. My adventure design needs looking at too. I try to be faithful to the setting. It's rich and there's lots of flavour to it. I need to think about introducing the weird stuff in a way that doesn't derail the players and leave them with nothing to get hold of and engage with. The dream logic can be a bit baffling and the pace was sucked out of the game when they were floundering. I wanted it to be intriguing and I think it was just confusing. As for GM intrusions, I started off well but ran out of steam. On reflection, I should have used them more effectively to give them options to get them out of the confused holes that they were falling in. It needed more injection of adventure. Dave, the games master for The Strange that I played in the morning, handled it better by ramping up the urban fantasy elements and keeping the strange stuff to a minimum until the finale. Ah well, we're all still learning how to do this, aren't we? Each game makes us better. Now, I'm busy with the preparation for Grog Meet 19, which takes place in Manchester. There's some great games lined up in the wonderful Fanboy 3 game store. If you've signed up, then look out for information soon 
or follow the grognardfiles.com page to keep up with developments. Thanks to all of you who've offered submissions for Grogzine 20. We want to produce a social history of RPGs from the 70s, 80s and 90s to create a map of what's happening around the world. It's a chance to share the characters, the worlds and adventures you produced back in the day. There's been some tantalising ideas already offered. Mike cool sketch map that he made of the Tin Inn, anyone? If you want to have a copy of the zine, then you need to be a Patreon supporter. The Grog Pod will always be free, but the kind, generous tips help us to do other projects, encourage us to carry on and help pay for some of the costs associated with the podcast. I've just bought an editing app so I don't have to rely on GarageBand and it will hopefully equalise the sound a bit better. Thank you to patrons old and new and we've managed to unlock a patron-only grog locker containing resources and PDFs to enhance your grog pod experience. We'll give some individual shout-outs to new joiners next time. Until then, thank you very much. We have some new merchandise available in the Redbubble store. The Grog Shop has been updated with the new design for Grog Meat 19 based on Uncle Joe's Mint Balls design. I didn't realise that they were such a local phenomenon. Wayne Peters, who kindly produced the design, hadn't heard of them. There's a song by Mike Harding and everything. Well, I'm glad to be an educator. Only those who seek death or sell it will be interested in the next episode. Until then, adios amigos. There's a place in Wigan and a place you all should know. A busy little factory where things are all aglow. But they don't make gates or Ethel's cakes or things to stick on walls. But night and day they work away at Uncle Joe's Mimballs Cause Uncle Joe's Mimballs keep you all aglow Do one to your granny and watch the bugger go Away with coughs and stipples, take a few in hand Suck them and see, you'll agree they're the best in all the land Well I gave one to the Coleman's horse as it stood in the road it gave a cough, then buggered off, complete with cart and load. It ran on to the race course, going like a bird. It covered the track with nutty slack and came for second and third. Cause Uncle Joe's been balls, keep you all aglow. Give one to your granny, oh watch the bugger go. Away with cuffs and snibbles, take a few in hand. Suck them and see, you'll agree they're the best in all the land.